0: And welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm AJ Brandon, and if you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you might have noticed that Peter did not do the loud, annoying intro. Peter's not here today. I have brought on our first ever guest, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brandon. Hey, AJ.
1: <laughs> you don't know my name? You said AJ Brandon, and it just it's a first name.
0: <laughs> We've only been friends for five oh. years. I'm not surprised you don't know my name yet.
1: Hey, well, at least least I didn't call you uh,
0: Brent. Brent, yeah. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, I had a um, screen name that was Suck It Brent for all my things, just because I've got a great friend named Brent and I want him to know his place. And Jeff specifically kept calling me Brent, even though we know each other very well. And so eventually I changed it to just fine, I'm AJ. (laughs) I think you should have just
1: uh, leaned into it and gone by (laughs) Brent. Just
0: embraced my inner Brent. Yeah. So Jeff, everybody knows me super well because they've listened to every single episode of the podcast, unless they just started here, in which case this will be very confusing. I mean, I certainly have. (laughs) But for everybody who doesn't know Jeff, Jeff, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get started in the board gaming hobby? And uh, how did that start lead you to this podcast here today?
1: So I used to work in journalism. I went to school uh, to be a reporter, and then I worked in Canadian news media for uh, about 5 years and it's uh <laughs> it's not a great market to be in it's pretty nasty right now so i ended up at a certain point getting laid off and looking f- to switch careers you know i'd been passionate about playing board games for a long time and i wanted to see How I could turn my skills into something that would be useful to the board game industry. So I ended up landing on being a rulebook editor. So now I do uh, technical writing and editing for rulebooks for companies like uh, WizKids, Pandasaurus Games. I did some for Academy Games. And Jellybean. (laughs) And Jellybean, yes. And uh, I do a bit of layout as well. And of course, I also design games because literally everyone who works in board games is a designer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's important that you brought that up because I think a lot of people, like you say, wear a lot of different hats, but that lends you to having a lot of different skill sets. You're kind of a triple threat, right? You're a great designer. You're a great developer and you're great at rule book writing. And when I say great at rule book writing, I don't just mean literally the words on the page, but as you said, the layout, which is really, really important. Do you want to dig into that a little bit? Because I think that's a super interesting topic.
1: Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the the board game industry is still young, and it's got a lot of room to grow. And one of the ways that I think a lot of publishers could grow is by developing the way they do rulebooks. I think a lot of rulebooks out there could use a lot of improvement. Technical writing, it's a skill set. There's degree programs in that that you can get. In board games, we have the added difficulty that we are writing technically for a lay audience. Mm -hmm. So not only do we have to follow the rules of technical writing, we also have to define all of our terms in such a way that it's not gonna confuse lay people. We have to introduce a whole framework for teaching something and then do the teaching in a way that anybody could follow. And a lot of that is visual. The best way to learn anything is to have as many modalities as you can, to have writing, to have visuals, to have sounds and video if you can do that as well. And a rulebook can do a lot of those things. So it can have text, it can tell you how to do something, it can show you how to do something with a picture, it can walk you through the steps of doing something with a visual example, but all of that stuff is hard and takes time to do well. And the production cycle behind a lot of board games does not really allow to put the time and energy into making rulebooks all they could be. Generally, in workflow for a board game, the rulebook is the last thing that gets looked at. And usually by that time, (laughs) the uh, deadlines and time constraints have kicked in and people are rushing to the finish line. So unfortunately, that's where a lot of the corners get cut. And it's a real shame because I think a rulebook can make or break a game. If it's a great game, but nobody can figure out how to play it, um, it's not going to do well.
0: Absolutely. I think I just gave an example of this last episode. Where I was talking about Catacombs, which is a dexterity sort of crokinole meets descent sort of a game. And the game is itself is really easy to get into. I've taught it in like a minute or two, literally. Whereas the rule book is like 30 plus pages, and a lot of it is just them putting things in the wrong position. Like you don't need to know all the advanced rules up front. Like you'd look up abilities as you go after you already know the core rules or leaving advanced characters or advanced rules or advanced systems that you don't need to know for your first play leaving that until later
1: yeah so i mean it struck me recently the dice tower put out one of their top 10 lists and it was for their are top 10 gorgeous stinkers, games that looked great and they really wanted to love, but they just couldn't love them. And it really struck me how many of the games they listed were games that had bad rule books. They saw the game, it looked gorgeous, it was produced well. All the mechanics were things that they knew they would like, but then they got into the rule book and it was just made the whole thing clunky and didn't work. I think it's reasonable to say that a lot of those cases, those games would have done better if they had better rule books.
0: Well, I'd love to dig into that more with you another time, but right now, I'd love to go into our main topic, and today we're going to focus on a game that you co-designed with Peter, Cartouche. Cartouche is going to be hitting Kickstarter soon, so I wanted to go into a little bit about the history of it, because I think that for designers, there's a lot of value in being able to look at the finished product, and look at the history of how that product started and the evolution of it. I really wish that more games had biographies of them done and you got to see more about like the behind-the-scenes process because I think a lot of the time, as a designer, I can really easily see the finished product and I can really easily see prototypes. But it's very infrequent. You get to see those middle stages where it's like in the development process. There's not as much game design content in podcast form or blogs that go into what that looks like, I find. And so I'd like to go into sort of where this project started, how it evolved, and where it ended up. So before we get too deep into the meat of this thing here, I want to talk about what does the finished product look like today? What is Cartouche for the audience members who aren't familiar with it?
1: Cartouche is a one-to-four player tile laying game that is following in sort of the footsteps of other tile laying games that are on the market right now. Polyonomo based games where you are sort of laying tiles on your board in a pattern to try and achieve some goals. We really like games like that. I'm a big fan of Uwe Rosenberg's uh, tile laying games and I've always been like a visual spatial gamer. So we put together a game that sort of goes one step past that. We wanted to develop beyond the sort of just acquiring tiles in some fancy way and putting them on your board. We wanted to have other things that you do with the tiles. And so Cartouche is a game where you're placing the tiles on your board, but you're also trying to gather resources. You're trying to position the tiles in such a way that they create paths along your board while also trying to create zones on your board and you're multitasking with your tiles. Each of your tiles is gonna do several different things. And the better you get at the game, the more you can place a tile in such a way that it accomplishes a whole bunch of your goals at once. And the idea there was that it's just, it's very satisfying to make a plan and execute it in such a way that you check off a whole bunch of boxes at the same time.
0: And for those of you who don't know, polyomino means essentially Tetris style pieces, those blocks that slot together. But in Cartouche, it's less about just creating a big block of them like it is in Baron Park or in other polyomino games and it's more about like jeff was saying using them in creative ways that you can get multiple effects out of them whether it's connecting to different locations on the board or creating those zones where there's multiple different special things that you'll get so originally i know that this was peter's design and then from my understanding he brought you on to dev and then you you sort of got roped into co-designing it with him
1: <laughs> yeah so it was it was peter's design initially and it was called the game was called Knights of Atlantis and it was a game about underwater mermaid people. And you were building like a kingdom underwater. Really, the only thing this game has in common with that one is that there are polyomino tiles in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything else about the game has changed. Now, that, that wasn't all uh, That wasn't all me. Peter went through several iterations of the game and he got to a point where he felt stuck with it. Peter is a designer who makes a lot of games at the same time. So when he runs into a problem with the design, a lot of the time what he'll do is uh, shelve the game for a while, work on some other games and then come back to it. During this period of having shelved this game, I was looking to do more development work. This was about two or three years ago. And so I offered to spend some hours into playtesting some ideas for it. I am part of Peter's regular playtest group. So I had played the game with him before when he would bring it and we'd test a bunch of things. And so I had some of my own ideas from those playtests about, well, I wonder if this idea would work. What, what would happen if I changed this? Peter felt like he was at the point in the design where he needed some fresh ideas and wanted some outside opinions to just see where it would go. So he gave it to me for some paid contract work to sort of play with it a little bit. And you know, I went in and I, I, I gutted some stuff, I changed or added some new mechanisms. I, playtested it a few times with people, and I brought it back to Peter and I showed it to him. And at that point, he liked the new design enough that he asked me to come on as as a co-designer instead of a developer. For anybody who's not familiar with the distinction, um, usually a designer makes uh, royalties on games that are sold so if you designed a game you get your name on the front of the box and then every copy that's sold you get a couple of cents in royalties. A developer is usually brought in after a game has been signed by a publisher and is paid on an hourly basis and does not get any royalties. It's kind of a trade-off whether you want to be a designer or a developer. As a designer there's a greater potential upside if your game goes on to be an evergreen hit and it sells you know, 10,000 copies you'll make more money but you won't see all of that right away and you might not see any of it ever. Developer you have a lot more guaranteed money because you're getting paid hourly but if the game blows up you don't see any of that. Uh, So basically what Peter was asking me was do I believe in this game enough to put more work into it and then to be paid on a royalties basis rather than an hourly basis. And other than that, like my role didn't really change that much. The main difference from a workflow perspective is that as a designer, you know, I'm not tracking my hours. So I have potentially an unlimited workload, but also from a creative perspective that gives me more freedom, right? Like as a developer, I am limited by my hours. I have to make proposed changes that I can do within a certain window of time because that's what the publisher can pay for but as a designer i'm free to propose more radical stuff that'll take more time to change and test and so that's what we, we agreed to do here so i ended up coming on as a co-designer and then from there we punched it back and forth a while there were a lot of different variants that we went through we held on to the aquatic theme for a long time for a long time the tiles were like different types of fish and sea creatures and it looked great like we loved the visuals of having these like colorful ocean creatures and it looked sort of like an aquarium tank but it never really like thematically made sense why you were stacking fish so isle of cats has done very well as a as a game and they came up with a really good story for why you're stacking these cats we never got there we never figured that out for why you would stack sea creatures. So we thought we tossed around some other themes and we eventually arrived at this Egyptian theme with the hieroglyphics and building a mural with your tiles to just sort of fit the story of what you're doing a little bit better. It does feel like you're building a mural. You're sort of telling a visual story and experiencing that story as you play through the game.
0: Yeah, I thought you did a fantastic job with with mirroring that because I had played Peter's very original (laughs) one before you had touched it. When I saw it sort of laid out, comparatively to how it looks in the current version of it, it's night and day. And like you say, thematically, it makes perfect sense. If you look at a wall of hieroglyphics, that's exactly what the game looks like when it's laid out and when you're done playing it, which is a really cool thing that not a lot of other games are able to pull something off that well, I think.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me through the whole process was the importance of design vision, because through all of our prototyping, both when it was aquatic animals and when it was the Egyptian team, people could never really see the game. Hmm. The game is so visual. And the thing that you're building with these tiles is so important that when you're just using, you know, flat, colored tiles, which was what we had for the prototype, you just don't really see, you don't feel like you're doing anything. You feel like you're playing a pure abstract. Um, I think that happens a lot during design for games. And it's very hard to, while you're designing, being like, okay, well, what is this game going to visually look like at the end? And how's that gonna influ- influence how people play? And it was, it's very important because it's a visual spatial game that people feel a sense of the visual space they're mm-hmm. creating. Yeah, it was like really hard to, to design while thinking about what that visual space was gonna look like, but not actually having it to test. And that was one of the great things about co-designing this with Peter, because as a publisher, he has that view into, like he could, he's also a creative director at Jelly Bean, and so he could visualize what everything was gonna look like at the end in a way that I couldn't. The things I was picturing in my head Is it really gonna look like hieroglyphics? How do you make sure that if you flip or rotate the tiles, it doesn't look like they're upside down, right? Mm -hmm. But Peter had that all figured out. And when it finally, when he brought in the artists and they did it it all, it just came together really well. And yeah, I'm super happy with where where it ended up.
0: So let's dig into a little bit more. Like obviously you've got your strengths, Peter has his, and there's definitely a a significant amount of overlap there, but what did the co-design process look like? Who did what and what was your workflow?
1: Peter and I have similar design philosophies. So I've been designing for four years now. I started in 2017. Very early on, I started working with Peter and Peter has been like a very strong influence in my you know, learning how to design and develop games. So a lot of my design philosophy mirrors his and in a lot of ways we think about things in similar ways. But in terms of the way the co-design worked out, it was a lot of, I take it for a while, I make changes, I test them, I pitch it back to him, then he takes it, he puts in his changes, he tests it for a while, and then kicks it back to me. And we would sort of kick back and forth that way. Especially since a bunch of the design happened during COVID and we weren't physically in the same place to play test. there was a lot of sending the game back and forth, bouncing it back and forth between us while we added our own extra element. I think an important part of co-design is that it allows you to push past your own prejudices. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the time Peter and I both have these things where, you know, we'll hear a pitch for a mechanic or a rule and we'll be like, nah, nah, that'll never work and we don't want to test it. And the problem with that is that even if you do push back that yourself and you do test it, it's not going to be an optimal environment for testing it because you're already sort of against it. If I have a preconceived notion that this rule is not going to work, I can test it, but it's probably not going to work as well as if someone was testing it that believed it could work. Mm-hmm. If I pitch something that Peter doesn't think is going to work, I can go test it myself, see if it does work because I think it's a good idea, and then it either it does or it doesn't, and then Peter can do the same thing. We end up testing a lot of ideas that we would have dismissed out of hand if we were working on it solo, which I think is really good. And I think a big part of it is also our extra hours of labor. You have double the amount of capacity for building prototype and writing rules and playtesting with people. People don't really talk much about the creative burnout related to game design, but a lot of game design is iterating and a lot of iterating is failing, right? Um, You build a new prototype that you're like super excited to try out, You play it, it crashes, it burns, like everybody hates it, it falls apart after two turns or whatever. And Mm -hmm. that's really discouraging. Every time you have a bad playtest, it's hard to pick the game back up again and try something different. But you need to. You need to do that a lot. You need to do that potentially dozens or even like a hundred times before the game gets publishably good. And. Uh, having a co-designer and being able to bounce it to them when you're feeling discouraged is a really good way to get past that block. So if I tested a version of the game and it really didn't work and I was feeling discouraged and it was like, oh, why am I even designing this game? I could give it to Peter and Peter who wasn't there for that playtest, who isn't feeling as discouraged could you know, do his spin on do the next build and bring back something else. And it allows us to push past what would otherwise be a moment of, you know, I'm just going to shelve the design and come back to it in a few months kind of thing.
0: That makes a lot of sense. You brought up that Peter brought his art direction skills to the table when you were working on this, and that was really helpful. Do you feel like there were any other skills that Peter brought that helped you that you didn't have? Or do you feel like there were any skills that you brought to the table that really helped Peter that he would have been lacking without you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that from the inside, I guess. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm good at everything, but I'm sure I'm not.
0: I think you're good at everything.
1: Yeah. I mean, Peter's very good at visually. I'm pretty good as a technical writer. I'm pretty good at formalizing systems. So like coming up with rules that will make sense when you write them out as a sentence and making things more, not rigid, but formalized, I guess. Taking what's sort of like a vague concept and turning it into a rule that makes sense and that works with Mm -hmm. the game. And I also think that I probably these days play more published games than Peter does. Um, or at the the time, pre-COVID, I was doing so. And I was getting maybe a bit of a better feel for like the games that were out there on the market Hmm. and what some of the newer games were doing that was interesting that either we could riff off of or avoid doing because somebody else had already done it. In terms of what Peter brought to the table, I mentioned creative being a publisher, like Peter is focused on product, but not not as much as some publishers. Like I think Peter is very design focused. He started in logic puzzles and the, you know, rule sets of a game really matter to him, but he can see what's gonna make a game sell. Mm-hmm. And that's something that not a lot of designers are bringing to the table, right? Like we're, we're making games that we wanna make and we're not necessarily thinking about what the audience is for those games beyond ourselves. The whole question of like, what is the theme going to be? What are the visuals going to be? What do we need to incorporate as draws to the game? That's a big part of the discussion of what makes a good game. I find as a designer, you can get very focused on mechanics. You can get very into your head about what's going to make this game the perfect game. A game can be an excellent design, but if it doesn't have a solid theme and it's not produced well and those pieces don't all fit together well, then it's not really going to go anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And Peter brings a lot of that stuff to the table, I guess. Those, those other non-design components.
0: Like you say, most designers just think, I'm going to make a good game. And making a good game is not even close to good enough.
1: No. There's thousands of good (laughs) games. Like, everybody has a good game. That was a tough lesson to learn, and I think that's one that every designer has to learn at some point when you're getting into game design. There are so many good game ideas. Everybody has, like, five of them. Literally every gamer you meet at a convention has ideas for games that are good. There's just so much else that happens. Even if it's, you know, you go beyond an idea, you have a game that is actually good. There's still so much between a good game design and... A box on a shelf that people are gonna buy.
0: Well said. The thing that got my name out there in the design community a little bit was my talk on why your good game won't sell, which I'll put in the show notes. But basically it's a talk about what the product looks like versus what your game looks like. And it goes into Mm -hmm. the pitfalls you can have when all you're focusing on is making a good game and you're not thinking about exactly what you said there. What does this look like when it's on the shelf? Does this make sense for someone to actually pick up and buy? when compared to the other things that are on the market. Mm -hmm. Peter has told me that you redesigned this game twice, (laughs) you've already talked a little (laughs) bit about this. Do you want to go into a little bit more depth into what he means by that? Sure, I mean, I,
1: you know, there's, there's some digging back through my memory. The game that Peter designed was a worker placement game, which used a mechanism from one of his other games that's coming out. I don't know if Robot's been in now. Yep, Robotopia. Yeah, so he used another mechanic from his game Robotopia that's coming out, which uh, has to do with clearing worker spaces to get resources. So you would place workers in this region. It would slowly fill up with workers until it became inaccessible. And someone at some point would have to go in and use the space that clears that region. And they would get resources based on how many workers they clear from that region. He ended up actually taking that mechanic from this game, separating it off and making Robotopia out of it like that came out of that was sort of a branch of his knights of atlantis game that became a whole other game because it didn't really work well with the polyomino placement the problem that he ran into was a complex worker placement game got in the way of the tile placement your goal with this worker placement game was to acquire the tiles that you then put on your board to complete your goals and people found it frustrating when they would get the piece they want but they couldn't put it in quite the right spot he had basically Turned Tetris into a worker placement game. You had to put a worker down to move your tiles back and forth at the top of your board. You had to put a worker down to flip or rotate them. And then you had to take an action to like drop your tiles to the bottom of your board so they would fall down and stack on each other. And he went through various iterations. You'd never quite get it to work. The biggest thing I did when he first gave them to me was I immediately stripped out the action to move and rotate the tiles. And I just let you put your tiles anywhere you wanted on your board. At that point, it still had an action based mechanism to gather the tiles, but you could put them wherever you wanted once you had them. It allowed you to play the visual puzzle game that people wanted to play. And Peter, because of what his initial design vision was, he had never really thought of doing that. His immediate comment when I showed it to him, he was like, oh, I never thought of just getting rid of the action to rotate pieces. And he wasn't opposed to that idea. It just had never occurred to him because it was not the design path he was going down. So he was very thankful that I had brought in that idea sort of like jump-started the process now from there we went through a whole bunch of different versions of this system of acquiring your tiles was it going to be a worker placement game we had an action selection mechanic at a certain point where you had discs that you put on scythe style board in front of you and you had to take a different action each turn and there were two different buckets of tiles you could gather there were like standards shaped Tetris pieces with the four square polyominoes, and then there were the five and six square polyominoes that came out of a bag and you could either go grab uh, one big one or two regular shaped ones. I think at some point we got rid of the action system and then just went to cards and then you had a hand of cards that you would use to draft your pieces. You would draw cards from a deck and they would have action icons on them and on your turn you would play some number of action icons to take that action a bunch of times. And I think around that point, we had an outside developer come in to do a couple playtests of the game and give us some feedback. And based on their feedback, we decided to ditch the action selection mechanic entirely and just have a draft where you draft pieces at the start of the turn the evolution kept pushing us from just simpler and simpler mechanics to get the pieces you wanted because the visual puzzle of placing the pieces was the interesting thing that we wanted to do and it was also like your goals were all related to what was on your personal board and so the satisfying part of the game was completing goals by putting things on your board the action selection mechanic always felt like it was this layer on top that was getting in the way of the game and so we got it narrower and narrower and narrower and so we found the easiest way to acquire tiles with the least decision making overhead the least setup and the least other players screwing with you, which was just like you put out a bunch of tiles on the table and you take them. And when we got to that system, it was pretty clear that that was right system for this game. There could be a game out there that uses the more complex worker place mechanic. The problem with it for Cartouche was the goals you're solving and the visual puzzle that you're doing on your board is actually quite complex already. As we talked about, it's not like Baron Park where you're just trying to fill up space on your board. You actually really have to plan out, okay, I need this icon next to this icon and these two colored pieces need to be next to each other and three moves ahead, I need to be here. That's where people were drawn. That's where players wanted to invest their energy and they didn't want to invest their energy in the action selection mechanic.
0: There's a certain amount of cognitive load that players are able to spend and it's kind of like a budget right you've got so much mental energy that you have and as a game designer you needed to choose where you wanted players to spend their energy functionally peter had two separate systems he had the gathering tiles and resources and utilizing those tiles and resources and it was the utilizing that was the really interesting thing so he stripped away all that other stuff so people could just spend all their mental energy on what was the fun core part of the game instead of the sort of ancillary part of the game. Is that is that accurate?
1: Yeah, well, it was, it's interesting because the evolution was more, um, so Peter's inspiration for the game was Feast for Odin, right? right? Feast for Odin, I believe is his favorite design. I believe it still is. He loves that game. And Feast for Odin, it's a worker placement game with a lot of, there's like 42 worker placement spaces on the board. It's an extremely complex worker placement game and you acquire tiles, which you then place on your board. But the tile placement in that is, relatively simple. You're filling up space. You can get some stuff, I believe, by covering or surrounding coins or something. So Peter started with that, where the worker placement was actually the central mechanic, and the board was quite simple at the beginning. Oh, really? Yeah, the main part of the board was you were filling up rows on your board with these Tetris pieces that you were dropping. And the icons on the board were not there at the start. That was something that I believe I added when I first came in was this idea of having these icons that you would try to match up next to your pieces to give you resources. When that came in, that sort of started drawing people more towards the board itself. And then the goal cards sort of followed on that. And then eventually we just sort of naturally progressed more towards a more complex visual spatial Hmm. puzzle. And then that became interesting enough that we had to start pulling away from the worker mechanics. So it was almost like the early game it was like ten percent visual puzzle and ninety percent worker placement. And then the visual puzzle started expanding. And then as it expanded, the worker placement had to shrink until it was it's basically now ninety percent tile placement and ten percent action selection. Yeah. And like that was never intentional. That was never a design goal that we had it was kind of just a natural evolution of the game over its lifetime. Not all games are designed like that. I definitely wouldn't recommend that as a deliberate design strategy. Usually it's very good to have a solid design goal to work from, but if it does start to evolve, it's also a good idea to let it evolve and let it go on the journey where it takes you.
0: Yeah, I've said this before. I feel like when you start working on a game, it's almost like following a thread. There's what the game sort of wants to be, and you can sort of impose and make whatever you want to. But I think through the playtesting process, you'll naturally find the things that players gravitate towards. And I believe, generally speaking, the correct path to take is to follow that thread and to see what players are engaging with and to emphasize and focus on those aspects and diminish the other aspects, even if that's not what you started with in the first place as your intention for the design.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think a big part of it, too, is that Peter took those worker placement mechanics. And he didn't, like, throw them in the garbage. He went and made mm-hmm. a whole other game based on them, right? And at first, when some of that stuff got cut, he was disappointed and being like, oh, well, you know, my design vision for the game really included a lot of this stuff. But, you know, there's no reason that cutting that out of this game means it needs to disappear entirely. The design forked and he took it in two different directions at the same time.
0: That's a fantastic point. Never throw anything out, always keep those ideas. You never know when that might be the right solution to another problem you're having in a different game, right? I mean, which one of us is only working on one game, (laughs) (laughs) certainly not me. Building on that, actually, this is a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious. A lot of designers have like this one cool mechanic that you've come up with and they just try and fit it into every design that they have. Do you have one of those? I have a couple. I think
1: there's. I have an interesting theory about that. Well, I shouldn't say it's interesting. I have a theory (laughs) about that. I think that there's a selection process that happens, that maybe some of those designers have a couple of those innovative mechanics that they like, and that if one of them is one that people really gravitate towards, then games will keep getting published with that mechanic and it'll become sort of their you know, they're the thing they're known for. And then it can become a self-fulfilling sort of thing. But it's tough because like, it's not enough to just have a mechanic that you like, it has to be one that's good. (laughs) Um, And that actually is innovative. And those mechanics don't come along very very often, right? So like, I have some things that I like doing in games and that I use because I find them very flexible. But if the market, the gamer audience doesn't think it's a good mechanic, then none of those games are gonna get published. So it's never gonna be my like signature Mm -hmm. thing. But I mean, as far as what they actually are, have you played... Civilization, A New Dawn. I have not.
0: I'd like
1: to. So I don't love that game. I actually sold my copy of it, but it has this mechanic in it. Your action It's an action selection mechanic where you have a series of cards, and when you use one of the cards, it goes to the back of the row and becomes worse. So let's say you have four cards. If you use the card that's in the second position, it'll go to the back of the row. Now cards further to the right that have progressed farther along the row are more valuable. So let's say if the card's in the last position on the slot in the row, you get to take that action four times. If it's in the third position, you get to take it three times two times whatever if you take the one that's in the third row you get to do it three times it goes to the back of the row and pushes the other two up and the thing that this encourages is like you have to diversify your actions because if you keep taking the same action it's just going to only ever be in the first slot and keep going back one space it'll never progress to the end of the row in order to make the actions you want to take stronger you have to take other actions to try and push that card up And this was a really cool idea that I saw in A New Dawn, and I just wanted to riff on that. And so I've done a couple games now they are in various stages of playtesting that have used that, where either you have your own little private row of cards or tiles that get stronger. The longer you don't use them, the stronger they get. And I've also tried doing it like a war game where there's a public row, where the longer it stays there, the stronger it gets. But it's kind of a push your luck thing. If you really want to take an action in that row, do you want to wait and see if it's going to get stronger or do you want to take it now before somebody else gets a chance to grab it? So that's one thing that I really like putting into games. If I can pitch my other game for a second. The mechanic we put into Aruto, the board game. I
0: love that mechanic. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> it's a hand management game. It's a co-op game. And anytime you play a card, it goes into your pool. So you play a card, you do the actions on the card, and then it enters your energy pool, basically, similar to how mana works in uh, Magic or other games. So each mana has a color to it similar to magic again. But the key here is that any player on the team can use your mana with your permission. So if you play a blue mana card, you do the action, then you play a red mana card that do the action. The next player who takes their turn can play a card that costs a red and blue mana and spends your mana, gives it back to you, and you now have those actions to take again. And they get to take the more powerful action. So do you set up these like team combos as you go around the circle? That mechanic was so successful, the team at Blacklist liked it so much that they're looking at doing a line of games in different franchises that's built around that, different variations of that mechanic. So I may end up doing a couple games that use that as a central thing.
0: And I look forward to playing all of them because it is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Immediately after I played that game for the first time, I was like, either you're going to do a lot more games with this or I am.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, and I mean, that's an interesting thing too, right? Cause some people feel ownerships of their mechanics. I have a hard time feeling that way because I usually like, I can see where it came from. Like the, the one I described, the first one I described, um, pretty much came from a new dawn. Someone else had had done it, and I imagine they probably riffed on something else that they had played that I have not played. It's hard for me to see any of my innovative mechanics as being like, I developed them whole cloth from nothing. And I kind of feel like any of the designers out there who are known for a particular set of mechanics, I doubt they exist in isolation either.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you trace any mechanic back, it has an origin. All ideas come from somewhere. It's very hard to imagine a situation where a designer just came up with this amazing, brilliant mechanic that wasn't building on anything that came before it.
1: Yeah, and once you acknowledge that, it's hard to say, like, no, you can't riff on this mechanic. that You know, you can't do the thing I just did. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but like it can be disappointing because in some cases, maybe someone makes the exact same game you did and they get it published first. It's not really anybody's fault. It just kind of can happen.
0: Mm -hmm. So back to Cartouche, one of the things that really stood out to me that was a really smart design decision was the way that scoring works, how all of the scoring points add up to 10. You have seven points from this thing, three points from another, or five points from this, five points from this. And I complimented Peter on what a great idea that was, and he said, that was Jeff's. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to know how conscious of a decision was that for you to reduce the cognitive load for players and to on-ramp new players? And were there any other considerations that also went into those types of things?
1: I, I don't know if I can fully take credit for that because like it was kind of an accident. Oh, really? Yeah, I needed numbers to put on the cards. I needed arbitrary numbers. They needed to stack in a certain way. <laughs> and I was like, let's just make them all out up to 10 because it'll be easy to count and then I can change them later. And it worked so well that we ended up building everything else out around that and scaling the points for the end game goals and things like that based on the goals on the cards. I like. I knew that the 3, seven ten distribution was roughly where I wanted it to be or is it 5, 7, 10 in the final version, I think. That's triangular a little bit, so like 5 plus 2 and then 7 plus 3 is is about the scoring range that we wanted to go with. I think there were a couple iterations of it, like there was a two, three, five version as well. You always want your scoring to be as intuitive as you can make it, and I think that making scoring intuitive is potentially more important than making it perfectly balanced. Oh, yeah. Because the thing about balancing the numbers on these distributions is that the gameplay behaviors will adapt to what the numbers are, not the other way around. So if I make the high level goals worth 20 points and the lower ones worth 10 points, people will go for the 20 point goals more than if I make them 15 points. So if I come up with the scoring distribution first, the one that is intuitive and makes sense, then players will play around that distribution. hmm So the main things you're looking for with that scoring distribution when you're initially coming up with it are, will players figure it out? Will they get a rough idea of what's more valuable and what is less valuable? And are these things at least roughly equivalent in difficulty to what I want them to be? I also find that when you're doing distributions for scoring or resource values or whatever, starting with the number two is way better than starting with the number one. Interesting. This is a weird thing, but yeah, the two, three, four versus one, two, three are very different series of numbers because with one, two, three, that means that your third tier is triple the value of your first tier, right. so you have to get three of the base tier to equal one of the top tier. Whereas two, three, four gives you one is effectively one, one and a half, two. The distance between them is much smaller than one, two, three, mm-hmm. and that gives you a little bit more finesse when you're when you're counting up that leads to distributions where the lowest number is higher. So 5, 7, 10, or 2, 3, 5. In those cases, those numbers are actually closer together in terms of percentage value than actually lower numbers, 1, 2, 3, or 1, 3, 5. If you do something that starts with one, you are limiting the smallest increment that you can do between cards to doubling the card. Right.
0: There's another minor interesting benefit from that as well, which is just the psychology of numbers. If anyone has ever played a mobile game, you don't get one gold, you get a thousand gold. Functionally, a thousand gold in a lot of these games is literally 10 cents. Yeah. Because the number says 1,000, you don't think, oh, this is basically worthless. You think, oh, it's a thousand gold. I should make sure I get my daily rewards in.
1: Now, there's a danger to that, though, because the flip side is that if you feel like a thousand points is worth a lot then the player who has five hundred points less than you feels like they
0: got stomped. Interesting. I found the opposite. I found that if someone has five hundred points and someone has a thousand points, that feels a lot better than like fifty and a hundred.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. But I find five and ten feels closer to people than fifty and a hundred. I have found that this really struck me when I played Blood Rage the first couple of times. That game has like sort of a snowball y texture to mm-hmm. it where uh, Endgame scores can be, you know, 200 points or more. If your strategy pays off, you can easily end up with 50 to 100 points more than the next highest player. And even if that is only 30 to 40 percent of your score, it feels like they left you in the dust. Um, partially because of like how the board is shaped and how how many squares there are on the board, how much further ahead they are on the board. But I think there's something to be said for games like Twilight Imperium that keep like the scoring within one to ten points. Obviously, the more Twilight Imperium in play, you re- the more you realize the difference between 3 points and 10 points. But to a new player, the difference between 5 points and 10 points feels like the game was actually winnable still. like right. you, you feel more like you could have gotten those 5 extra points than that you could have got those 50 extra points.
0: That makes sense. I wonder how I would conduct a study to like try and figure out what the optimal number range yeah. is. That's a really interesting topic.
1: Yeah, so realizing that has pushed my designs more to like try and compress point values so that they're exactly as high as they need to be and no higher. Like I'm very wary of going to point salad and having scores that are just like way out of the ballpark. Because the other thing is, so I don't know if you played the game Pulsar 2849. I have not. That is a Euro game that I think really goes too far into point salad territory. Um, And what it does is it basically awards you a couple of points for literally everything you do. So every turn, you're gonna make somewhere between two and 10 points. A really good turn, you're gonna make 10 to 15 points. A bad turn, you're gonna make two to three points. And every action you take is worth points. And you can calculate the point value of every action you take. And it leads to this min-max optimization puzzle where there are no real long-term goals. Everything is just uh, like, how do I make the most points this turn? How do I max the value of points I'm going to make? What is the action I could take that is worth the most points immediately?
0: Wasn't that just a design decision between with them deciding to err on the tactics side very heavily as opposed to strategic?
1: I didn't get the expectation from that game that it was intended to be a tactical game. Okay. Like, it feels like it was more supposed to be like Terra Mystica style where there's some in-game scoring, but you do still care a lot about the end game goals. I see. Um, And there are endgame goals in Pulsar 2849. The problem I find with it is that you don't really feel big payoff moments when you do it that way. Where there was no real like, oh, I got this, this is worth 10 points. It felt like everything was so incremental that I could never really see where I'd been beaten by other players or where I could have done better. Because I couldn't be like, oh, you know, I missed out on 20 points here. Or if I had built more in this direction, I could have scored this objective better. I couldn't look back on my game and be like, this is where my 150 points came from. This is why I did well this game versus poorly this game. And I wanted that. Like in Twilight Imperium, you can see exactly where each one of your points came from. Looking at your score and the objectives you scored, you can tell a story of how the game went. At the end of a Euro where you've scored 250 points and you don't really know where those points came from, I feel like you lose that story.
0: One thing I would say in defense of point salads is they do operate as an ego shield. Yeah. I've said this before on the podcast, a monkey playing a point salad game could end with, say, 120 points. Like, it's literally impossible to end the game with less. Yeah. Yeah if someone gets 130 points, but then someone gets 150, it feels like it was really close, even though really they got zero and the other person <laughs> got the, 20. The 30 point differential that yeah. matter, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I can I can see that. The thing you're giving up on though, is the cleverness that the player who got the 150 points gets to feel when they see that they got those 30 points, right? But it's a trade off. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be point salad games, but I do think there is a point of diminishing returns where uh, you can, you can start making things a bit too fine grained and lose sight of the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, you're definitely right. So back to the Cartouche. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying these tangents. This is great. Yeah, we should have you on more often. Maybe I'll just tell Peter he's not allowed to come back anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that sounds good.
0: (laughs) Who likes to talk to Peter anyway? We've talked a lot about sort of where the design went in sort of a bit more granularity, but let's talk about some big picture stuff. What is your favorite contribution to the design?
1: It's hard to say at this point. Like, it's so blended. There's uh, very little I can point to to say, like, this was mine versus this was Peter's. Mm -hmm. Part of that is that it was a three year journey and if I went back in my notes, I could probably figure it out. But it really feels like the whole game is is ours, if that makes sense. In terms of like ideas I added to the game, I really liked the icon matching. And that was something that Peter likes to joke that I'm a, I'm a stuff guy. <laughs> There's one of the, the four types of Magic the Gathering players that I am, which is, but I'm the one who likes to collect stuff. And I, I always joke that if a game has those little acrylic see-through crystals in it, I'm like all over it because I just love the touch feel of those things, but I just want to get all of them. I made a whole Space 4X game where your goal is to collect them. To me, the matching up the two icons and getting a token that matches sets off a dopamine hit in my brain right like i put these two things down i get to take a token yay and that just feels nice to me and so it gives these like brief little hits of oh yeah i put a i put a piece here i get three tokens that feels great and peter doesn't have that response he just doesn't get anything out of it so it was totally alien to him when i brought in this he was like well why did you do that and i was like because it feels great and he at first was sort of like just just baffled by it but the more he saw people engaging with it that it was like oh yeah these people played the game badly but they still had a fun time because they got to collect a whole bunch of stuff by by putting their pieces down in clever ways i feel like that was a really good contribution because it was a gameplay incentive that i have that that peter doesn't have Mm -hmm. and we brought it in and and worked it into the game and for an example peter really doesn't like splendor he kind of feels like it's just doesn't really have any flavor to it Mm My theory about Splendor is one of the reasons that it has been so successful is that you get to take these really satisfying poker chip things with pretty gems on them and hoard them, right? Like you have a, a feeling of like, yes, I get these gems. And like, you're not even really doing anything to get them. You just take them on your turn, but it feels satisfying to gather them. And so I give Splendor a lot more credit. I enjoy it quite a bit with my family. Probably not the game that I'll pull out with my gamer group, but I think there's something intrinsically satisfying about it.
0: Absolutely. If Splunder didn't have those nice components, it would not be successful. <laughs> no. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's such a simple, straightforward game, but yeah, the components. And I think Azul as well. Azul is, oh, yeah. is a really solid game, but the components and the feel of it is, the tactility of it is just incredible.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing you touched on there was the hit that you get when you take those tokens mm-hmm. and when you get the things. And I've complimented Cartouche on being probably the best example of feedback in a game that I've played where you place the tile immediately. Good job. You got a token and then Mm -hmm. here's your reward. And then as soon as you complete an objective, okay, now you get this bonus that you get to take, here's your reward. And then if you complete a set of objectives, then you'll get to go on the main objective board. It's just feedback after feedback, after feedback, you're doing a great job and here's your reward for it. And that just feels fantastic.
1: Yeah, and we definitely leaned into that. Now the danger of a system set up that way is that it can lead to snowballing, right? Yeah. So in, initially we had even more feedback. You could complete a goal and then you would get one of the bonuses and then you could use the bonus to complete another goal and you could do these these uh, big chains of actions that felt super satisfying to do them. But felt really oppressive when you were sitting next to someone <laughs> watching them do it. So we had to be pretty careful to get that balance right of making sure that you felt really good pulling off combos and getting a whole bunch of layered feedback loops, but without making other players feel like they were left in the dust. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty happy with how that turned out. I mean, one of the things we did have to do actually was people enjoy the grabbing the tokens so much from placing the pieces that we had to find other outlets for them because there actually (laughs) like weren't enough goals in the game to spend all the tokens people were collecting. Uh, So we ended up, you know, adding in a little market where you could buy additional pieces if you had excess tokens. It makes you feel better because you're never wasting them. Is that still in the game? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, there's, uh, there's like a translation thing in the corner.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, the purple ones. Right, right.
1: Yes, yeah. You can spend one token for something, two tokens for something, or two, three, four, or something like that. (laughs) I I should remember, but we went through several (laughs) iterations of that thing. Yeah, that was added in as an outlet valve for people who just wanted to collect tokens. And it works pretty well, right? Like if you really want to lean hard into tokens, you can buy more pieces with them and then parlay that back into completing other goals as well.
0: Before we head into wrap up, were there any lessons that you learned from this project were there any big takeaways that you had as a designer or developer
1: yeah well um so this was my first big co-design actually so i learned a lot about how co-designing works i have never really thought of myself as a team player i think i think it's a problem a lot of designers have is that we're all very much like we have our vision we're stubborn about it we're idea people and idea people don't always like to share <laughs> if that makes sense i i always wanted to do like my game my way and in my head i would always think that i was better off on my own because if i had a co-designer we just we wouldn't see eye to eye and there would be issues co-designing with peter really made me see that there are ways to work through that stuff and the process of working through that stuff is so good for the game getting yourself out of your own head trying things that you wouldn't normally try on your own Getting past your own like prejudices about what's going to work and what's not is so important. And ultimately, I think that even if you don't have a co-designer, at some point, most designers are going to work with a developer who's going to do a lot of that stuff as well. And I think it is so important to have someone on the outside, effectively someone who is editing your game. Like you as the diner are the novelist. You need an editor. Mm-hmm. You need someone to bounce back and forth with on stuff because if you just go to print with your raw manuscript as is without editing, it's gonna have problems. Like it's it's gonna have stuff that you didn't see because you never put up a mirror to it. So learning how to how to co design, how to manage co design, how to split up workflow, things like that. I would definitely say that I learned a ton about player responses to certain mechanics. Uh, we talked about the idea of the worker placement action selection mechanism getting in the way of what people wanted to do in the game. That's probably the clearest example I've seen of of that in a design experience I've had, where like there was this mechanic that we really liked and we wanted to keep in the game, but people were just not engaging with it. And it was this extra layer of chaff that people had to dig through to get to the game they wanted. And learning to recognize those kinds of mechanics and be willing to let them go definitely is (laughs) something I learned along the way here.
0: That's awesome. That's a lot of good takeaways. We're gonna head into wrap up now. So what we do first is we have a teaser for the next episode. So next episode, we are going to tell you what board games suck at. (laughs) And before we go, we're going to have a fun question. So this is the only part of the show that we're allowed to have fun. (laughs) And it's a nice question just to get to know each other a little bit better and ask something that's completely unrelated from game design. So Jeff, my question for you today is, do you have any phobias? And if you do, do you know what caused them?
1: Uh, I'm terrified of deep water. Hmm ironically, because I started making a game about ocean life. <laughs> I have no idea what caused it. I get really scared of water where I can't see the bottom.
0: Hmm. So uh, you don't go too far in the ocean, huh?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I've never been really in the ocean past the shore. I, I haven't traveled a whole lot. Uh, most of my experience with water is in like deep lakes in, in Ontario, <laughs> which can have some pretty nasty stuff down there. Yep. Um, there's like lampreys and things like that. No, I just always had this I, this idea in my head that something was going to like come up out of the deep and try and swallow me.
0: I have almost the inverse fear. I am petrified of heights. (laughs) I used to work as a lumberjack and there was a giant dust bin that we used to collect all the sawdust and stuff that came up as we were processing wood. It was huge, literally 50 feet tall. And on two separate occasions, I had to climb this rickety 50 foot tall ladder to get to the top of the thing. Both times I just sort of like looked at the ladder, climbed up and I was okay getting up. But then coming down, having to look down. And what you had to do is basically swing yourself over from the platform onto the ladder. <laughs> I needed a good like 10 minutes to work up the courage to do that. It was awful. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I like to me, I feel like fear of heights shouldn't be
1: called a phobia because right? it's entirely rational. That's how I like, feel. <laughs> <laughs> it is very dangerous to be up high. You should be afraid of it.
0: <laughs> I was actually going to say that exact thing my second answer that is actually a phobia is i am terrified of needles when i was Mm. a kid i had a really bad experience at the dentist where they kept jabbing into the wrong spot when i got my vaccines they would wipe it with the sanitizer and as soon as i feel out of my arm my arm knows it's going to happen and my body starts shaking (laughs) i'm an adult i go through it but i I literally (laughs) have a panic attack every time i get a needle so (laughs) so that is our show jeff if people want to reach out to you for development work or for your rule book editing mad skills or anything else, how can they reach you?
1: So I have a website, jwfraser.fraser.ca, which is where I take. A, I have a contact form and I have a bunch of my samples up there, and yeah, that's uh, how you can reach me for any kind of
0: work. Any projects you want to plug? We already talked about your Naruto game.
1: Yeah, so just the Boruto board game with Blacklist Games is uh, coming out uh, early 2022. And I have a couple games that I'm developing for Pandasaurus that are coming out soon. Another one actually by Peter, which is be announced in the fall.
0: That one's so good, by the way. It's
1: a two-player abstract about time travel. That one, and also Brew, which is a dice placement game that Pandasaurus put out uh, earlier. This uh, actually, I think it just just shipped like a week or two ago. It's like just just in stores now. It's a great game. I don't get any money when you buy it, but <laughs> I had a lot of fun developing it, so... should go out and buy it. It's very pretty.
0: You put a lot of work into devving that game. I played this side with you and the core of it was always really interesting but I think you made it really really clean and you really emphasized the really interesting parts of the game.
1: Yeah, it's it's nice to see like, it's probably the published game that I put the most work into. And it's been a lot of fun to see like reviewers pick it up for the first time. Like I I don't hear a ton of designers talk about this, but that feeling of when your first game comes out and people start saying that they love it or they hate it, you know, it's a fun little fun experience.
0: I think yeah if any of you are looking for a really tense family weight game like it's dice placement but it's really fast place and it's pretty aggressive for dice placement it's got sort of an area control element to it but yeah it's, it's got a lot going on it's a pretty cool game
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah i would love to spend a whole other episode talking about it here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we will we'll see i've been aj brandon and i've been jeff fraser <laughs> this has been fun problems thanks for listening guys <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Pod, or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. Cool.